Hello, my name is Alessandro and this is the Lobster Podcast, a space for conversations out of our comfort zone. This is an incredibly revealing episode dedicated to climate change and to sustainable urbanism. I'm joined by an expert from the London School of Economics, Philip Rode. Philip is the executive director of LSE Cities and an associate professional lecturer at the School of Public Policy. Without a doubt, he is one of the most influential leaders when it comes to the development of sustainable cities around the world. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the Lobster Podcast. How is it going? All very well. Thank you, uh, Alex. Awesome. Um, I'm really excited to have you here today on this podcast, uh, Philip. Um, would you mind telling us more about yourself, uh, who you are, you know, what you do and what you're passionate about? Yeah, sure. And I guess I link it to the reason why I'm speaking to you today, which is primarily the professional context. So I work uh, with cities, on cities. I'm based at the London School of Economics, where I uh, co-run a research and uh, executive education center called LSE Cities. And uh, as the name suggests, it is uh, a center dedicated to global urbanization and uh, city change. Uh, and that's very much uh, the broader context within which uh, I, I work, uh, both uh, within uh, Europe and, of course, uh, London, but also abroad internationally in uh, extremely diverse urban contexts. And I'm really excited to hear more about your um expertise right in this in this area in this field particularly with the focus on um, climate change the environment and obviously the impact of cities to it so uh, let's start from a personal side like are you a city person would you say you're a city person well you know better than uh, many of our audience members that i did not grow up in a city <laughs> so i can't really claim uh, that i'm a, a city's uh, person by birth, but what I can say, having grown up at Lake Constance, uh, that uh, I have always been exposed to cities and I always found them uh, inspiring, interesting, intriguing. And so the first thing uh, I did uh, once I was done with my civil service and of course high school was to uh, move to Berlin in the 1990s. And from then on, uh, I think uh, I, there was no looking back and uh, living in big cities. And as I said before, working also for uh, large uh, metropolitan regions. So what, what is it about big cities? When you moved to Berlin, what is it that caught you and what does that resonate to? I mean, so that was a very special moment uh, for all the obvious reasons in, in Germany and in, in Berlin specifically. But the, the more generic qualities is, of course, one of uh, indulging in anonymity, in diversity, in cosmopolitanism, in finding like-minded people. You have a much broader base of uh, individuals that have uh, you know, very specific interests. And in cities, it's easier to, to find uh, uh, people that, that share uh, the mindset. And yet at the same time, and that's, make, that's what makes it so interesting. It's not that you completely physically isolate uh, yourself from, you are following your interests and you're working with your peer groups embedded in, in, in these extremely diverse international societies. So I think in a nutshell, that that clearly is what is so attractive um, about uh, larger cities. And talking of which then, which is your favorite city in the world right now? Like maybe your top three and, and, and why so? I guess by now I have to say uh, London somehow belongs uh, to the mix. Um, London is uh, my place of choice. It's where uh, I'm bringing up my children. It's where I uh, met my partner. Uh, and it's where um, I found uh, an opportunity uh, with the London School of Economics to really uh, work in a very effective way in urbanism and uh, on all the topics I've just referred to. And maybe the most important element of this is that, that London, rather than sort of physically and how it's spatially organized, uh, being particularly attractive, in brackets, lots of it is actually not. Uh, yes, sort of the inner city and some of its infrastructure and the Thames and they are exciting bits. But what uh, is special about London is uh, uh, the, the type of people that are being brought together here and that share often a certain passion and outlook on, on life 
uh, that makes it a very special place. Um, I would say there are additional spatial qualities around the city. Uh, it's, uh, it's constantly changing. Um, living in London, certainly over the last 20 years, uh, within sort of uh, more or less the same inner uh, city location, uh, is like having lived in three, four different locations. Change is just around mm. you and, and uh, uh, your local street, uh, your neighborhood, uh, buildings are going, coming up, streets are being redesigned, new infrastructure opens up, old one closes down. Uh, and that's, of course, um, a privilege to, to, to witness that. In terms of other cities, you know, just to throw in uh, a few that certainly I always found quite inspiring, uh, Istanbul, uh, unique uh, location between Asia and Europe, uh, one of the oldest cities in the world, uh, a real, I think, amongst uh, just a few others, a real mega city within uh, Europe uh, and on, on the western side of Asia. And it's a place where, of course, uh, local politics is uh, struggling to, to um, translate into sort of a more progressive metropolitan uh, city. Uh, there are lots of unfortunate and more uh, sort of regressive uh, energies. And yet at the same time, uh, Istanbul is very rich and full of uh, change makers, people that are leading a sort of progressive reform agenda. And hopefully we'll hear more about this uh, once again in the very near future. Three cities, right? So let me add one which maybe your audience sure. will be less familiar with. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, this, the, the third largest city of Colombia, uh, Cali. And what's special about that place, um, it, it's about 2.3 million people. So, you know, uh, as I said, it, it's sort of a, almost the second tier. People may know Bogota and Medellin. But Cali, uh, first of all, has an amazing climate. It's uh, between 20 and 30 degrees throughout the year. Uh, but it's incredibly beautifully located in, in a vast and very rich valley at an altitude of a thousand meters. Uh, and uh, it really connects uh, nature and agricultural practices with, with urbanism and also, um, you know, leave the cliche aside, but there is a, a certain uh, energy in the city around uh, music, around uh, dance. Uh, it's the capital of salsa. Um, that, that makes it very special. And, you know, my, my better half comes from Cali, so how can I not mention it? Of course, that makes sense. <laughs> no, for me, what I'm what I'm hearing here is that um, that passion you have about cities is very tangible, um, and it's interesting the perspective because probably you're just scratching the surface here of um, of information around uh, urbanism in cities, and you touched on different cities and for me it's already so detailed and uh, and so vast in in information and diversity you already shared um and i you know i'm i'm passionate about cities as well i love cities although it's kind of for me it's a bit changing um from from loving to live in cities to somehow uh, see how i can approach myself more towards um towards the outskirts of cities and more towards nature eventually. Um, so let's diverge a bit further now from cities and we'll come back to it then at the end. But how are you perceiving you, the rapid change and constant change that is happening in the world? Well, overwhelming. If there's one wor word I would uh, use, it's, it's overwhelming. And I think uh, it must be overwhelming for most of us. Um, because uh, the level of uncertainty, uh, the level of uh, constant state of crisis, and uh, the, the the degree of uh, ongoing emergency mode uh, is um, is something which we as humans are not necessarily equipped uh, dealing with on 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 such a regular basis. So it's uh, unsettling, it's disturbing, uh, and um, I I don't really know um, what what is sort of the, the mindset that helps most. What, what is worrying, you know, the, uh, the, there are other generations that have, of course, lived through difficult times and difficult times on a daily basis. 
in, in during times of war and terror and uh, destruction. But I think what is different um, in those historic moments is that there was a hope for a better future. And what we are facing now, particularly the ecological and climate crisis, is that, you know, maybe we get out of COVID and maybe we get over uh, the current economic uh, problems and the energy crisis and inflation. But uh, the real big disaster is just uh, waiting around the corner. And every summer, every winter, throughout the seasons, we're getting constant reminders that uh, ecological systems are no longer coping in the way we predict, we, 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 are, we are used to making use of those uh, systems so that we can live happy and fulfilled lives. So we are taken by surprise, whether it's heat, whether it's flooding, whether it's droughts, whether uh, food supply crises and um, all of that, if anything, is becoming far, far more uh, uh, difficult moving forward even if we undertake the most radical steps to stop global heating, if we are adjusting our lifestyles, the, the, the carbon emissions already locked into our atmosphere will deliver change, which is, uh, to say the least, rather inconvenient. Um, mm. Now, that's one, one thing. On the other hand, you know, the, the, as the, the, the Chinese perspective on crisis is, it's, it's sort of a combination of, of, of course, uh, something worrying, but it's also an opportunity. Um, and uh, the opportunity is to, to come back to some pretty fundamental questions about what is development, what is quality of life, what is the purpose of, um, of a lot of our sort of uh, uh, daily routines and um, uh, the way we, we do things. And, and I think it's important individually and collectively to go back to those fundamentals and really query ourselves, are we on track uh, towards something that makes sense uh, for global society or not? And the answer, of course, is in many instances, we are not uh, on track and it doesn't make sense. And that then leads to a quite a fundamental and quite hopefully also creative uh, and far more hopeful way of engaging, not least with uh, politics. But um, at the moment, I, I don't think societies have yet been able to establish mechanisms through which they can, in a, in a good way, engage about this discussion about what, what's the future we want? Uh, what is uh, the stuff of the past that is really problematic and what we want to relieve uh, behind? So, um, yeah, I mean, that. That's, I mean, I can go on and on, but broadly speaking, it's it's a, a it's a completely crazy moment in history. Yeah, it's a historic moment for humankind and and for the planet as well, isn't it? And on, there is a we observe this transformation and we're experiencing this transformation basically daily on so many levels. It's it's socially, it's in it's communities. Uh, you're in touch even politically to observe that um, shifting environment is happening. Um, so it seems like a difficult habitat is, is creating um, for also the size of populations um, that are out there, right? Um, and it's steadily increasing. So how do you cope with this sense of overwhelm? Because I had exactly the same uh, feeling. Oh, I still have it. You know, it's scary. It's overwhelming. How do you cope with it personally, but interestingly also professionally? Yeah, let me start with the professional bit, because that's, of course, where yeah. working for a university, you are in a very privileged situation. Uh, you are dealing with the next generation. You are helping to educate them. Uh, you are also, as part of uh, your research, uh, able to fairly freely determine what you are focusing on to set your agenda. And of course, all of the things I've highlighted um, are in, in, inform my teaching, inform my research, inform my policy engagement. Uh, so you cope by, uh, you know, co confronting some of those big questions, set up a, a program with an organization called United Cities and Local Governments and another city network called Metropolis, uh, to set uh, up a, a network and, and, and research efforts around emergency governance and how 
democratic legitimacy can be built into radical and rapid uh, policy making or you are working on a different research strand in urban transport where it's all about how can we induce uh, in a more fair and equitable way quite uh, um, yeah, radical behavior change um, and ensure that we really drive down uh, the emissions. Uh, and uh, what then the system gives back is, of course, you, you, because these questions resonate, you, you get a sense of, okay, a sense of purpose. This, 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 is, this makes sense. It's important to engage uh, with a, a community um, of, of many different individuals, but also organizations to engage around these uh, topics. Uh, so that is quite important. But, you know, you can't um, cope only with uh, sort of a professional intellectual um, approach. Mm-hmm. I, I think we all need time where we, uh, where we also leave uh, sort of the, the thinking behind ourselves. And um, like, again, many people, I find it very rewarding to reconnect with nature, uh, to be physically active, to uh, enjoy the enormous beauties, not only our cities provide us with, but nature, whether it's mountains and the sea and uh, the hills and forests. And, and as much as possible, I try to, uh, to yeah, uh, have exposure to uh, the very natural habitats. And you mentioned before sort of the, the dialectic between urban and rural or urban and nature. And one of the thinking in urbanism more recently is actually to break that dialectic and to say, mm. uh, rather than being mutually exclusive, yes, we built cities historically to overcome nature, to overcome the, the, the forces and the constraints of living with nature. Uh, today, we need to do almost the opposite. We need to invite nature back into our cities. They need to help us to mentally cope. We need to see green and trees in our streets um, and most importantly, the best thing if you want to protect nature is uh, to live in a city because you will be living a more resourceful life. You will share more resources with others. You will be more energy efficient. Uh, and most importantly, you are able to leave also nature to nature rather than, uh, you know, uh, continue just uh, trying to occupy all lands and all bits of the planet. Interesting, because in a way, I mean, we are part of nature, isn't it? And But you mentioned that this drawing nature back into the city will help us and same effect will help the forests out there and, and the nature out there um, also to regenerate it by, the, by itself without us acting, uh, com, you know, decisively and with, with, um, with force, let's say. So... What is for you the role of future cities and how can sustainable urbanism make a difference? Good. So I, I, I think a few years ago, I would have now given you my uh, uh, recording on uh, the, the many different reasons why cities matter uh, from a structural and energy and um, yeah, sustainable urbanism perspective. We can come back to this, but I think at this moment and given to given that I spoke a bit about the, the broader political challenges we are facing, I, I would foreground the role cities can play as maybe our best hopes for, um, for the future of democracy, for overcoming uh, polarization in societies, for uh, rediscovering that we can live with difference, that we can um, celebrate uh, not just a different culture and different tastes, but also maybe different uh, political to a degree, because we do need to have a common ground. Um, and common ground is a, is a very good term because uh, ground is something spatial. Mm. And cities may actually uh, allow us to establish the common ground. Or to put it differently, if we live in in, in very, very different types of uh, spatial realities uh, dispersed over space, we, are, we disconnect. And that has been talked a lot about, even in the UK, how uh, some cities are disconnected from the ground realities from other cities, or how uh, urban life di- disconnects from rural life, and so on, or how certain cultural bubbles disconnect. But cities, if they are 
built well, if they're designed well, if they're managed in an, uh, through, through good and effective and progressive policy in a good way, they establish a platform where on a daily basis, very diverse people actually experience rather similar things. Mm -hmm. And that is starting to build a common understanding. Uh, kids going to the same school, uh, people using the same transport systems, seeing each other in the bus, in the tram, in, in the train, walking up and down the pavement, maybe shopping at the same local uh, uh, retail shop and so on and so forth. And on top of this, starting to share resources, share these infrastructures. So the city is uh, something which belongs to all of its residents and visitors and those that, that call themselves citizens. Uh, and on a daily basis in a good city, uh, you, you will not be able to just carve out your personal space, which you simply protect, but you will use uh, the, the pavement or the park or a public library or whatever it may be, or public transport systems, which actually belongs to you as much as it belongs to everyone else. Mm. And that can uh, instill a new sense of pride and belonging and, uh, and an appreciation for each other because you, we wouldn't be able to have this without the collective. I mean, that's the other thing. And if you now contrast that with um, what may be more dispersed life, and I'm not talking about villages, which often create also a lot of sort of communal, communal uh, living, but think more of dispersed suburban, exurban uh, development where people often move to because they want a lot of personal and private living space. They want their own gardens, their own swimming pools, their own uh, big flat screen TV, and um, they will leave their home because it's so far off from anywhere else, uh, also with their own four walls, i.e. the private car. It creates a very different relationship with other people. Yes, you may know your neighbors, but most likely they're fairly similar from who you are because in these dispersed settlements, you have a lot of social segregation. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it's a recipe to disc what the average uh, uh, measure of our society is, what, uh, what also very different people uh, are like, which the proximity the density, the complexity of urban life allows you to appreciate. Wow, this is amazing, Philip. I mean, I would continue like asking you questions around this because I understand this. If we talk about sustainable urbanism, there are very different layers that several, a lot of layers actually on a social level on diversity and inclusion you touched on. Um, it's amazing. But I'd love to hear now more concretely about you and the LSE. I mean, how have you already uh, been contributing to better cities? Yeah, so I think it's fair to suggest that uh, the, the, the center LSE cities sort of was really um, uh, helping to create a global commitment to the broad idea, which some people refer to as the compact city. We sometimes uh, refine it slightly as a compact, connected and clean city uh, that uh, does indeed feature a couple of core spatial characteristics um, and uh, key amongst these are uh, that you, there is uh, a threshold level of density so we're not talking about the very dispersed city the, the endless city that sprawls into the horizon but but a city that has a uh, uh, maybe also a, a concrete and contained form uh, uh, a, a threshold density of you know, sometimes people pick this out of thin air, a hundred person per hectare. Um, to give you another idea, it's probably urban space built around uh, at least terrace houses, if not uh, multi-story buildings rather than detached uh, houses. Uh, there is then a commitment also to public space um, that is collective. Uh, and then on the transport side, you have uh, a, a fully functioning uh, public transport system that is the backbone of movement, of physical movement, yeah. uh, supported by uh, endless opportunities for walking and increasingly also cycling and a whole range of uh, new urban mobility uh, opportunities. Uh, some of it electric, some of it not. Um, and sort of on, on top of all of this uh, is then in the post-industrial city, 
the unique opportunity for mixed use and also for mixed income and, uh, and uh, overall social mixity. I say in the post-industrial city, because uh, there was, of course, about 100 years ago, a major paradigm in urban development to say we need to separate out the different functions of the city. Living happens in one district, working around the factories in another one, and then shopping and services maybe somewhere uh, elsewhere for, for pretty good reasons. You know, industries were allowed and they were polluting. You didn't want to have them next door. But now we have uh, much cleaner industries. We also have shifted a lot from more manufacturing practices uh, in many advanced economy cities to uh, practices around uh, what's sort of broadly referred to as the knowledge economy or the, also the service economy. Um, and uh, that uh, allows for that uh, proximity. And uh, so that's a commitment um, which I think we have very much supported um, through our research, through our outreach programs, uh, and uh, a whole range of uh, educational initiatives as well. Uh, it's not that we invented that idea. It's actually was already talked about uh, during the mid 19 80s uh, uh, was then becoming more central to also particularly European policymaking throughout the 1990s. Uh, but it's something that still needs to be actually defended and argued for almost on a daily pay basis because the broad global trend is still one of dispersal, is still one of gated communities, of massive road building, of, uh, of uh, moving uh, into the horizon, as I said before. Uh, so that's that's an argument we are, which we are sustaining. So concretely, uh, there is uh, a lot of our research which which uh, quantified and in the times also qualified the, the energy advantages of these different urban systems with modeling efforts, with also empirical research, how in different parts of the world, different, we call it urban morphology, lead to uh, um, these ecological environmental advantages or disadvantages. And that uh, has been used uh, by a lot of sort of global policymaking uh, communities, above all the United Nations, but then also very uh, various uh, sub uh, organizations of the UN, the United Nations Environment Program, uh, the Development Program, uh, UN Habitat, uh, a whole range of different city networks, all the way down to individual cities, which in the end, probably in our work matters the most. So working in individual cities, uh, as part of uh, knowledge partners, uh, research providers, um, but also conveners for public uh, uh, engagement has been uh, something we have been incredibly keen to do. And, and the latest iteration in the two cities of Addis Ababa in Ethiopia and in, uh, in Athens, we work directly with the city governments uh, with this idea of a temporal think tank, which we set up, uh, which we called an urban age task force which operated and really supplied uh, um, uh, the, the city governments with concrete ideas, opportunities for creative pilots around, yeah, sustainable urbanism, as you referred to it earlier. Okay. So let's just clarify um, for the audience that doesn't really know anything uh, about urbanism or sustainable urbanism, or perhaps just know cities that are more like European cities, Western cities, because what you described, the model you described, um, I, I immediately I think about London, Zurich, Vancouver, uh, New York, I think about these kind of cities, but what about cities like, I don't know, um, Karachi, um, Nairobi, uh, Mexico City, uh, these mega cities that you say like are dispersing at a different velocity and are growing also in a different rate and velocity is is this feasible um i'm not i'm not having any doubts in what you do philip don't uh, misunderstand me i'm one i'm curious i'm like wh where are we with those cities that are just rapidly growing and need to develop a sustainable model to grow in an urban way yeah, I, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but let's just uh, unpack this a bit more. And you, you're right yes. to, of course, highlight one can't be too Eurocentric, um, although you're in Lisbon and I'm in, in London. Uh, the, the, so rapid uh, growth of cities in itself and per se is not 
uh, hindering uh, the kind of urbanism I described. In fact, 19th century rapid urbanization throughout Europe actually led to still one of the best urbanisms in the world. Think central wow. Paris, Barcelona, Berlin, um, the very distinct uh, block structure, the sometimes a grid layout, sometimes, uh, but very defined streets, uh, perimeter blocks, mixed use. I mean, that's the, the, the Berliner uh, Höfe, the, uh, the, the Serda grid in Barcelona. I mean, and you know, not just those cities I, I just mentioned. Many, many of those places developed excellent urbanism in the 19th century under conditions of rapid uh, growth. Yes, times were tough. People were sharing uh, some of these apartments where today you have uh, four students living in Berlin that was occupied each single room by uh, sort of squatters changing shifts uh, three times a day. Uh, an incredible density and, and sort of uh, uh, overwhelming occupancy rate in individual buildings. But the main physical fabric that was established at the time uh, has great legitimacy and great functionality still today. Um, where we lost it, where we really lost it is post-war. I mean, post-war urbanization in Europe and North America created models around the motor car, around the detached house, which some people would argue isn't really urbanism anymore. It's, uh, it doesn't create cityness. It, but back to now those uh, regions that are rapidly growing and uh, the most rapidly growing uh, axis around the world is, think about you know, from Western Africa, that axis all the way to uh, Eastern China. Uh, and that's, of course, cutting across also uh, the Indian subcontinent. You mentioned Karachi, uh, where, by the way, I mean, uh, whether it's Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, that's a world region where the tradition of incredibly dense, mixed-use, vibrant, urban uh, um, uh, sort of conditions uh, is, ha has always been existing and it's been even more extreme than anywhere in Europe. So... What matters in those contexts is to reinterpret, build on those logics rather than uh, sort of uh, buy into um, post-war North American urbanism, uh, which does happen as well uh, in those contexts. But still, I think that these are societies that also embrace uh, uh, public space, that embrace um, complex uh, urbanisms maybe more easily than, than in other places. Moving to the very east in, uh, in China, which is at, certainly at that scale the most well-managed infrastructure rollout with an enormous amount of uh, political and, and uh, literal energy spent on providing even prior to the arrival of uh, new populations in these cities. Uh, often, yes, with building typologies where we would just think, oh my God, uh, how would you want to live in there? How could you feel comfortable? in maybe small apartments. But, but even there, in, in, in several instances, uh, uh, new uh, urbanism is, is invented that speaks to some of these fundamental principles I have referred to, uh, connected to very excellent uh, public transport systems, uh, uh, in, uh, embedding extremely elaborate and uh, carefully curated green space, uh, public green space, where residents yeah. go in the morning and do Tai Chi collectively in their, in their sleeping gown because the sort of difference between public and private space in an East Asian context is, is quite different from what, what we would be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, if you then go to uh, the African uh, continent, in particular Sub-Saharan Africa, that may confront us with the biggest challenge because here we're talking about a region where the tradition of uh, considerable density and a degree of verticality is far less pronounced. Uh, a lot of uh, African uh, nations have a strong tradition in uh, being grounded uh, to, uh, to the land. Uh, uh, informal uh, dwellers uh, are struggling to and, and poorer dwellers to build anything but a, a single story, uh, uh, usually even, you know, just a tent structure. And over time, something that's then sort of upgraded. And as a result, uh, these are cities which at the moment um, sort of 
vertical, uh, sorry, uh, horizontalized to an extreme extent, uh, very much to the disadvantage of residents then often still moving from rural to urban areas because they will be located in the peripheries of Lagos, of Accra, of Nairobi, uh, uh, in most instances without sanitation, uh, any uh, uh, road network where you have sort of paved infrastructure uh, without also electricity, which is then slowly being integrated, but at far greater cost because you have already dispersed. And that's where the Ethiopian experience matters because Ethiopia uh, did indeed try to counteract that tendency with maybe also trying to uh, use too much public money. But nevertheless, they created public housing programs at scale where you have at least four or five story buildings being built, uh, where you're trying to also invest quite heavily into public transport and bus systems rather than just in the rollout of motorways. Um, now, all of this is, of course, uh, happening in, in an incredibly complex world where a small little research institute uh, in London is uh, uh, riding the mega waves of urbanization, uh, but through building alliances and building networks of international partners with local partners is able to maybe steer uh, the boat in this uh, very turbulent water in a tiny bit of a direction where it, it's hopefully helpful. And whether it's then uh, leading to the establishment of uh, a new bus route uh, or whether a mayor feels uh, really uh, confident enough to make the case for a certain kind of development because he or she feels there is a backing of, of uh, also sort of a global discourse. Uh, these are the little things that uh, we hope, of course, do make a massive difference. Yes, and I'm, it's impressive to hear um, the research that you're doing, Philip. It's uh, impressive to hear um, the impact that the London School of Economics is having on on a global scale. Uh, and it's even, you know, I find it amazing to hear also you talking so fluently and easily about cities around the globe. It feels to me like you have a perception of the planet and you have a perception of places on the planet, um, which not many people have. Uh, certainly me, I don't. Uh, so it's amazing to even hear you speak geographically and culturally uh, about these different places around the globe and um, and the extent of these cities and and it, it it even surfaces more how big the role is for cities to work on climate change that we mentioned and coming back to change in general what do you think needs to change or what how, you know what kind of mindset shift needs to happen towards climate change change in general i would say yeah i mean very much informed by the climate emergency i think the, the big uh, mindset change is that we can't afford to work with decades or even centuries, but instead at a maximum years, if not even months. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's starting to resonate. Uh, the global community has always worked with you know, 15 uh, to, to 20 year time horizons. I mean, think of the uh, Sustainable Development Goals of 2015, uh, which established the agenda uh, 2030, so uh, big, broad, very ambitious and very uh, uh, important uh, human development goals over uh, a fairly long period of time. Um, or more importantly, the Paris Agreement with the 1.5 degree commitment translated to uh, now increasingly nationally determined contributions to reducing uh, CO2 emissions, which then also are translated to individual cities. But uh, what started with then always a reference to 2050, which quite frankly for any elected official is entirely irrelevant mm -hmm. because they'll be long out of office before you reach that uh, deadline. We are now starting to talk about dates which are much, much closer to the present. And that uh, is sort of the first uh, way of, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, accelerating change because ult ultimately change needs to be accelerated. And then that leads to a second implication, 
uh, yes, technology and yes, uh, uh, innovation and, and uh, you know, big new ideas will be transformative eventually. They will take time. Uh, the single most important tool we have at the moment is behavior change. And I think that's yeah. something which the policy discourse still needs to appreciate. This is very difficult stuff. We have seen this under COVID, which essentially initially was all about just behavior change rather than any, I mean, technology then is the vaccine in the COVID case. Uh, we won't have a vaccine that quickly against uh, climate change. Uh, all these technological changes will require some time. Even building cities, we don't at the moment have the steel, the concrete, and a lot of other construction materials to produce uh, buildings and infrastructures at scale without massive carbon emissions. Five years ago, no one talked about the so-called embedded carbon. Now it's mm -hmm. becoming clear it's a major conundrum. If you were to take uh, the, the, the targets around Paris seriously, which is at a minimum seven to eight uh, uh, percent reduction of carbon emissions per year globally, translate that to mature rich cities, probably at least 15 to 20% CO2 reduction on an annual basis. What you would probably have to do is have a building moratorium. You start all, you stop all new construction and you focus exclusively on retrofitting and energy upgrading the existing building stock. We are far away from doing that. Our economy, our way of thinking and our behavior doesn't really synchronize with it. And on behavior, take transport. I mean, what a struggle. Uh, in our own home country of Germany, uh, we can't still get around the idea that maybe we should just drive less than 100 kilometers or 120 kilometers on the Autobahn. I mean, it's just completely yeah. ridiculous. I understand. Uh, but if, if, if you're serious, if, you, you know, if you're a scientist and you know the numbers, if you're well-informed policymakers and maker and you know the numbers, you will naturally have to conclude that it is behavior change. And a lot of people have started, and that's encouraging. Yeah. And there's a theory which says uh, there may not be even the requirement for uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, hoping for, for universal change, but what is initially needed is a threshold, uh, sometimes referred to sort of a social tipping point where maybe 25 to 30% of the population really proactively changes their behavior, their perspective, their voting patterns, and that will induce massive change uh, uh, follow, uh, following the logic that, that, that the majority is then very quickly on board. Uh, and uh, that idea of sort of thresholds and social thresholds uh, will be maybe most important to watch in a few selected cities, front-runner cities, my personal prediction is, yeah, London is interesting in there, Berlin as well, Barcelona, Paris. Again, we are a bit within the European context, quite rightly so, because, uh, you know, these are the contexts which have been industrialized for the longest time. Yeah. So uh, you could also argue these are the places that need the initial most radical change and where people also have the wealth, the education, the privilege to really uh, kickstart that, um, you know, revolution of um, of human urban uh, and of course urban natural existence yeah philip um i have two more questions that i want to ask you in this podcast you mentioned behavior is the strongest most powerful tool we have to do something so with more consciousness out there what small thing can we all do every day to make the world a better place Look, I, I think uh, let's just stick to the carbon. It's so straightforward. It's so simple uh, without even, you know, uh, giving instructions. Um, go, go to one of the many different uh, carbon uh, budget calculators uh, where, where you enter a few parameters of your life and your lifestyle, uh, how you travel, what you eat, where you live, um, and so on. Uh, and it will give you uh, a very uh, sort of general overview of how much you consume per year. Um, you know, the average European, probably if you really incorporate uh, the indirect emissions, it, it's at least 10 tons per year. Now, keep in mind that ideally, uh, each of us on the planet should not 
produce more than another 50 tons of CO2 mm -hmm. uh, for the rest of our lives to keep our planet safe. Wow. Uh, so uh, you can see how quickly people like us run out of a budget. Uh, but you can then also see, once you see your budget, you know, with a breakdown, uh, uh, where you can make the biggest difference. And people like ourselves, I mean, this is my speculation, uh, maybe the biggest one is indeed air travel, followed by what we eat. Yeah. And then since we live in cities, uh, yeah, probably a bit uh, uh, now how we heat and what kind of electricity we have and how well insulated our apartments are. Uh, but just sticking to intercity, international travel and food, that's already um, uh, something where you can have impact tomorrow. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. So if I can chip in a few here, I would say use less water, um, eat less meat, uh, use the energy switch more often. So switch off the light as well. Walk more often, ride a bicycle. You mentioned like short distances, you can actually ride a bicycle. It's healthy for you physically, mentally. Um, use your own body more, right? And and respect and care more uh, for, for nature, but also for the CO2 consumption that um, that you really have on a daily basis. And so my final question, Philip, is a personal one. Yeah, I know you have a beautiful children, a beautiful family. Um, what does the world habitat look like in which you dream that your children will live in? Well, I mean, the, the, certainly there needs to be a reconnection with, with nature, uh, not only because of uh, what I just referred to, uh, uh, the necessities of climate and so on, but I think for the next generation also because of uh, a, a very, uh, very significant competitor around the virtual the metaverse or, yes. you know, the mobile phone or, and social media. Um, and, uh, and I think for future generations to be able uh, to uh, enjoy the beauty of, uh, of rivers, lakes, uh, go for a swim, clean oceans uh, uh, and, and mountains, uh, because they remain safe or they may become even safer or because they all also... Um, are able um, to, to, to be uh, protected in a better way uh, uh, would maybe be my most central uh, wish. And that brings us back to the, the role of cities. You know, we, at what's happening in the Alps, which again, you know well, is, is almost a form of urbanizing uh, the Alps in Switzerland and Austria. And mm -hmm. uh, you, you can, you know, take a, take a train from central Zurich all the way to the top of the mountain and then have your favorite meal and it's all incredibly convenient and it's great uh, but I, I I do wonder whether with an, the excessive amount of trips you know even even by public transport into uh, the, these natural habitats um, whether these are something which uh, are ultimately destroying what we're all looking for and uh, maybe a degree of um, reducing the exposure of natural habitats to human visitors and at the same time uh, uh, being distributing the experience uh, of nature more equally. I mean, shocking statistic I read about uh, about 40% of London's kids are uh, so disadvantaged that they have never or they rarely engage with nature. Being outside of London in a forest or on the sea or in the mountains, is something that is just not happening for them, 40%. And so there is a, a, a justice argument as well sort of to, to redistribute this. But then to compensate for maybe slightly fewer trips uh, and more meaningful trips to our natural habitats, uh, by, by bringing uh, nature more successfully closer to where people live in cities uh, is, is equally important. So, you know, that, that's maybe the one thing I would... Uh, point out there are many other uh, and you know you can only wish for a global peace and uh, democracy to prevail and tolerance and uh, mutual understanding and uh, to tolerance towards diversity to be uh, um, re-established uh, but maybe these are also areas where the younger generation is is maybe quite good at um, they, they they probably are establishing now a whole range of new ways of thinking 
that that will enable that. But the one big challenge around nature, the climate, um, is something which uh, is even even too overwhelming for the millennials and the generations afterwards. Philip, thank you so much for coming to my podcast. Um, I have really loved this conversation. It's been very inspiring. I feel more hopeful now. I feel also more optimistic about the developments out there. There's so much that we don't know, um, overwhelmed by other kind of news. But this has been truly positive, inspiring. Uh, I've learned a lot about what you do. And how can people connect with you if they want to know more about all this? Uh, so it's very straightforward as uh, with uh, most academics in the world. Uh, you just uh, Google the first name uh, and the institution. Uh, so Philip Rode. LSE and you'll get all my details. Wonderful, perfect. Thanks a lot again, Philip. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode with Philip and me today. And please leave a quick review for the Lobster Podcast. Load it with as many stars as you can, please. My next episode will be equally amazing and even super adventurous. Join me to discover the exciting ocean expedition around the world with Plastic Odyssey co-founder and CEO Simon Bernard. You really want to stay tuned with the Lobster Podcast and don't miss out on this next conversation out of our comfort zone. To connect with me, check out my podcast bio or head directly to www.lobstercoaching.com.